Acts chapter 19, verse 23. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. And we thank you for this account of the power of the gospel, Lord, to disrupt an entire city. Lord, and even to bring to nothing those gods which the whole world worshipped. Father, this is the same gospel that you have given to us, that you have placed in our stewardship to make known to all the world, to make known to our friends, our neighbors, our family. Lord, that we would open our mouths and with boldness proclaim your word in the hope of the gospel. 
Father, today we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, open our hearts and open our minds. And Lord, right where we are in our homes, gathered together by your Spirit in faith, Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would transform us, and that you would conform us to the image of the Son of Glory, that we, your people, the church, would be a bright light and a great witness for your name in the earth today. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we see here is that Paul, remember, Paul has spent, by the time we get to the end of Acts chapter 19, Paul has spent almost three years in Ephesus. And Paul, remember last week we talked about how Paul did, God did unusual miracles at the hands of Paul. And they would take handkerchiefs and aprons and things that had come in contact with his body, lay it on sick people, and God would deliver them, raise them up, heal them, uh, deliver them from demon oppression. And there was such a great move of God in Ephesus that the people brought their books of magic, they brought all of their idolatrous things, piled them up and burnt them. And it said that the value of all of those books was uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. In, in other words, it was a great value. Uh, so it was not a small pile of books and things that the people brought. But you have to imagine that probably hundreds, thousands came and they burnt their idolatrous possessions because the gospel had set them free. They had come to know the truth, and the truth had made them free. And so when we uh, begin here in verse 23, uh, as Paul is getting ready, so in the, just in the preceding verses, it tells us that Paul is getting ready to depart from Ephesus, and he's going to go back to Macedonia. So he's on the Asian continent and he's getting ready to sail across the Aegean Sea and go back to Macedonia. And he's going to go see those churches and then eventually make his way back to Jerusalem. But before Paul can leave, this commotion arose concerning the way. So Verse 23, and about this time there arose a great commotion about the way. The way is what, the, it, it's how the Gentiles, it's how the early church, it's how uh, the first century described those who followed Jesus. Remember the term Christian came about in the city of Antioch, and it was actually a pejorative term. So being a Christian there in the first century, when you were called a Christian, it wasn't it wasn't a compliment. It was actually a derogatory term. And the people who were followers of Christ were generally called the way. This is what the Jews called them. And this is what they came to be known as. And so this is what Luke writes here, that this commotion arose concerning the way or concerning those who followed Jesus, those who were Christians. And we know that by now, after almost three years, Paul has converted many people, not just in the city of Ephesus, but remember it said that he had, people had come from all over Asia as he taught in the school of Tyrannus, and all of Asia 
had heard the gospel. And so Paul's influence uh, through the gospel had grown throughout almost all of Asia. And that's what Demetrius is telling his fellow uh, tradesmen, the craftsmen who who made these silver shrines and who made these idols and sold them. This is how they made their money. And it was a very profitable business because the whole world worshipped Artemis. Artemis was the Greek name for this god. Diana was the Roman name. And so it's called the Temple of Diana because in the first century here, this is the Roman world. Uh, and so they use... Luke uses the Roman name of the goddess, but this is not the temple of Diana that was in the city of Rome. This is the temple of Artemis that was the seven, one of the seven wonders of the world, and it existed there in Ephesus till about 400 AD. So this was a grand structure that people literally came from all over the world, not just to see, but to worship in. And so these silversmiths, these craftsmen who made these little idols, little idols, big idols, they, whatever size you wanted, they would make it. And as people would come to the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana to worship her, these tradesmen sold their wares, and this is how they made their money. Now, the gospel had threatened that. Just the preaching of the gospel had converted so many people to faith in Christ, and they abandoned their idolatry, that this was having a real economic impact on these tradesmen. Now imagine today, just think with me for a moment, pornography is a billion dollar industry. Can you imagine if faith in Christ and the gospel became so prevalent in our world that pornography or human trafficking or any other sin that you could think of basically lost its ability to make people a profit. That's what was happening here in Ephesus. And these men were losing money and they saw their way of life literally fading before their eyes. And they said, we've got to do something about this. And so what they did is they called all of their guild together, all of their fellow craftsmen from all over. And Demetrius says, we've got to do something about this. Now listen to what he says. If we go down to verse 27. Well, first of all, look at verse 26. He says, moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia... This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So Demetrius is telling us it's not just in Ephesus where Paul has spent three years teaching, but through almost all of Asia, people have turned from their idolatry and it was having a real economic impact on these tradesmen. And so verse 27 so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So the fear was that their trade would fall into disrepute. In other words, 
their reputation, not just as tradesmen, as craftsmen, but in a sense as those charged with creating the very things used to worship this goddess worldwide, that that trade would fall into disrepute, that people would no longer look at their trade as valuable. In fact, they would begin to look at their trade as something that should be rejected because as men embraced the gospel, they were rejecting the false worship of this goddess and all other idols. So they were worried about their trade falling into disrepute, but he doesn't stop there. He said, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised. In other words, people aren't going to want to come to this temple anymore because they revere it now. But if the gospel is allowed to continue, the temple will become despised. But he doesn't stop there. And her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, disrespute, despised, and destroyed. Now, think about what happened in the previous verses where all of these people brought all of their stuff and burned it. And what was going through the minds of these craftsmen who made their money, made their living off of creating idols for the worship of this goddess, was that if, if our trade and if the worship of Diana falls into such disrepute and men begin to despise this goddess, how long will it be before they will actually destroy her magnificence? If they're going to burn their books if they're going to reject it to that degree, how long will it be before they destroy this temple and destroy her magnificence? Now, let me stop there for just a moment. Do you see what Demetrius is doing? Do you, do you see his strategy here? Now, he may have really believed that that was a possibility. and I, In fact, I don't doubt that he did. But he was playing on the, the fears of the people. Because we're going to see that as this commotion turns into basically a mob and a riot, the scripture tells us they, they don't even know why they're all gathered together doing what they're doing. And when we see what happened some 2,000 years ago, it's very similar to what we see happening in our culture today. The enemy and the enemy's strategies are not any different today than they ever were. He's doing the very same things he did in the garden that he did at Ephesus that he's doing today. But I want to make sure that we understand that this is not just the work of the enemy. Because the devil is not an omniscient being. The devil can't be everywhere all at the same time. God is omniscient. The enemy is not. And what is as much at play here is the sinfulness of man. It is the carnality and the flesh of man. The sinfulness. Man's sinful nature. It wasn't that all of these people were supercharged by devils and demons. These people were giving place to their flesh, their carnal nature. 
in allowing themselves, they're just giving themselves to that. And this is important for us to understand today. This is why the gospel is so vital. Because the only thing that can deliver us from ourselves is the gospel. Amen. And the gospel doesn't just save us from hell. It doesn't just save us from the enemy. It saves us from ourselves. We are under condemnation if we are not under God's submission and God's gospel. The world was already condemned when Jesus came. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And so what existed in Ephesus was already there. And when Paul began to preach the gospel, what we're seeing is a reaction to the sinful nature of man. And you see that it does not take a lot for that sinful nature to be um, inflamed and for that sinful nature to carry men in that emotion and in that sinfulness uh, to do things and they don't even know why they're doing it. Think about the things that we've seen over the last year in 2020. Think about the scenes we saw in Portland or Seattle, the scenes we saw in our own capital recently, the scenes we've seen in countless cities and countless places where there are literally, even in our own capital here in Austin, um, people died because the mob was there and it was just people and confusion and anarchy. This is, this is what sin produces. And so Paul is preaching the gospel for almost three years in Ephesus and the gospel is making a real difference. So much so that men came together and said, if we do not do something about this Paul, we are going to lose our way of life. We're going to lose our goddess and, and we all will become despised and she will be destroyed. Verse 28, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath. Now think about that. When they heard this, they were full of wrath, crying out for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So their sinful nature and those things that they were given over to didn't just make them angry or frustrated. They were full of wrath. The word wrath here is not just, I'm angry. I mean, we get angry, right? We get frustrated. We, we hear the news, we see what's happening in the world around us, and, and we say things like, man, that makes me so angry. But I want you to understand that this was more than just people being angry or frustrated. It says they were full of wrath. In other words, wrath filled them to the point that they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, and the whole city was filled with confusion. This is what wrath does. It creates confusion. The whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. So they were... They were motivated by something. We'll talk about this in a little bit. But what, what, what motivated them, they were fueled by wrath. 
They were motivated by envy, by, by self-seeking. This is why the craftsmen came together to figure out what they could do to stop the gospel. It wasn't about Diana. It was really about them. But it was wrath that fueled the mob and sent the whole city into the theater with one accord. And it says, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions, so they seized whoever they could find. Paul wasn't there. So they seized his companions. And when Paul found out, Paul wanted to go into the people, but the disciples would not allow him. Why? Because they were filled with wrath. In other words, they were ready to kill someone. They were ready to, to give place to their wrath and let that wrath do whatever, whatever it was that would happen there. And the disciples of Paul, the friends of Paul, realized that Paul could not go in there because he would never make it out. You notice Paul was not afraid to go in, but Paul was held back from going in, and he was, he was given wise counsel to not go into that theater. It says in verse 31, Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Why? Because these officials knew what would happen if he went in there. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, verse 32, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now think about, think about some of the images that we all saw last year of, of the riots. They were called peaceful protest. But think about the pictures we saw of mobs of people smashing windows and going into stores and just looting and ransacking. People lost their lives as a result of that. Innocent people lost their lives as a result of that. Uh, they, that happened all over our nation. And those people, whatever, whatever the mob came together for to begin with, those people that were smashing windows and looting, they had no idea why the mob was gathered. They were just there, caught up in the sinfulness and the reaction of what was happening. And this is what's happening here in Ephesus. It says the assembly was confused, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Now, why would you join a mass mob and all go into a theater and and cry for two hours. This is what the scripture tells us. They cried out for two hours, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Two hours. I'm, I'm going to preach to you probably for about 40, 45 minutes. Imagine standing out there for two hours, nonstop, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and no one could quiet them down. And the Bible says they, they didn't even know why they were out there. And you see that what we're witnessing in our nation is not something new. This is a product of sin. This is a product of the carnal mind and the carnal nature of man. We very often point a finger at the devil, but the reality is it's our own flesh. It's our own lust and desire that draws us away 
This is what James tells us. And so verse 33, they, they didn't allow Paul to go in. And it says in verse 33, they drew Alexander out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so this mob is there nonstop crying out. Why? Because what they heard Demetrius say is that Diana will become despised and her magnificence destroyed. And you see the idolatry. These are people given over to their idolatry. And what you see happening here is they were filled with wrath. They were confused. The crowd in Ephesus reacted much the same way we've seen the crowds in our own nation react. Think about when Paul was in, in Athens. Remember when Paul was there, it says daily he was in the marketplace preaching the gospel, reasoning with the people. And then finally the, the philosophers, the guys who had the council, um, took him before the council so that they could hear about this God. And Paul gave a reasoned presentation of the gospel before these philosophers who ultimately dismissed him when he began to speak of the resurrection, the resurrected Christ, a physical resurrection. And you see that there was no civil discourse here in Ephesus as Paul had found in Athens. This was a mob purely reacting out of their sin but you also see the grace of God prevailing in the mob because Paul was not allowed to go in there. So Paul doesn't lose his life right now in Ephesus, even though Paul was ready to lay his life down. And what was the mob reacting to? Being inflamed by a silversmith, by an idol maker? No. I mean, that, that might have been the catalyst that created uh, the mob or the inflammation. But what really was happening was the mob was reacting to the light and the truth of the gospel because that light and that truth had exposed the hopeless folly of their idolatry and sin to the point that men were seeing a real difference in a real transformation of their city and their region. Now their sinful way of life was threatened with disrepute being despised and ultimately destroyed. Now today, I had, to, I had to go online to find pictures of what they think the Temple of Artemis looked like, and they have a pretty good idea because they've got historical records, and they also have the, the ruins that are there, the ruins. What's left of Diana? What's left of Artemis? Ruins. That's it. You can go... Uh, to Greece, you can go to uh, Turkey, and you can see the ruins of these temples and of these gods and goddesses that still exist today, but people aren't there worshiping them. They're there touring historical ruins for entertainment, not for worship. What happened to the worship of Diana? It, it's gone. Why? Because the gospel consumed it. Because it was exactly as Demetrius said. 
her magnificence was destroyed, not by earthquakes, not by time, but by the gospel. The gospel is ultimately what destroyed the magnificence of Diana. And it didn't just happen in Ephesus. What they feared actually happened, and it happened because of the gospel. And a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses from ancient times are forgotten to us today, except in our mythology classes or literature or history. The rock cut out without hands that Daniel saw in his vision is smashing kingdoms and filling the whole earth. The kingdom of Christ has no end and it will continue to fill the whole earth until Jesus returns and finally end all warfare and put all enemies underfoot, his last enemy being death. So the whole city was filled with confusion. Confusion reigned. The assembly was confused, and most did not know why they were there. We know God is not the author of confusion. That is the work of the enemy and of our carnal mind and our carnal nature. James 3.16 tells us exactly what was happening here and what exactly is happening in our day and age today. James 3.16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. This is exactly what motivated Demetrius and the others, envy and self-seeking. The result was confusion and evil. That is the same result we're seeing today in our own culture, confusion and every evil thing. It, it, today we're not dealing with men who are making little idols out of silver and selling them. Today, though, we're dealing with the same sorts of idolatry. This is, this is a heart matter. And today we see people getting canceled in our culture. Why? Because of envy and self-seeking. It's no different. It's the same sin. It's the same lie. And the answer is the same. It's not creating more committees for, to deal with disparity and inequity and inclusion. That's not the answer. Though our city thinks that's the answer, that's not the answer. The answer for all of us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Only through the gospel will we ever have true social justice. James goes on to teach us that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The very atmosphere that mob created was contrary to God and to the God of peace. James 3, 17 and 18, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice what James says. He says, The wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. This is what Demetrius and those who followed him and those who were enraged by his inflammatory remarks, they were not willing to yield to the gospel. 
So we can see this on a large scale uh, with a mob in a city, whether it was 2,000 years ago or whether it was in 2020 or 2021 here in America. We can also see that unwillingness to yield in our own hearts, in our own lives. Because we are unwilling to yield to God, we are holding on to our sin. We're holding on to our pride and our self-seeking and our envy. And we envy others. And we seek for ourselves. And we hold on to our sin. But the Bible says that the only way to be delivered from that is to yield. To yield Yield to what? It's not yielding to a what. It's yielding to a who. It is surrendering to Jesus. What brought transformation to Ephesus? It was all of the people that surrendered to Jesus. And in surrendering to Jesus and willing and being willing to yield to Him, righteousness began to spring up. Peace began to spring up. The fruit of righteousness was seen and made manifest. The mob was not interested in peace or righteousness. They were motivated by envy and self-seeking, and they were fueled by wrath. Confusion reigned, and most of the people didn't know why they had gathered. And this indicates that most were just carried along with the crowd, like many people do today. We're just carried along with the crowd. We're just carried along in a different way. Now think about 2,000 years ago in ancient Ephesus. There was no TV. There was no internet. There was no social media. How were people carried along? Well, they were carried along the same way people are today. Now we might not have mobs out gathering in our city square, marching to our stadiums. But we have mobs gathered on social media. We have mobs gathered in all sorts of ways. And we have people who are being carried along with the mob because they see everyone else joining the mob. They see and they hear all of the things and they're just joining the mob and they don't even know why. Because confusion is reigning. Because they're joining the mob out of envy and self-seeking. Paul makes it very clear that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We don't have the right in Christ to seek ourself any longer. We are called to seek God, to seek the face of God, to seek the glory of God. If we believe the gospel, then we have to believe what Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's not what the mob does. Because the mob doesn't see themselves crucified because they don't want to be crucified because they are seeking self. Which is why they're envious. Because they want for themselves what they see others have. This is what sinful men do. They give place to their carnal nature and their carnal minds without any regard to what is right or what is righteous. 
God is not the author of confusion and God does not want us to be governed by or operate from confusion. God calls his children to walk wisely in his way. God calls us to counter the spirit of the age with his wisdom. Jesus says to his disciples, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. This is what it means to know when and how to fight our battles. Now I'm going to read from verse 35 to the end of this chapter. So they're all there. They're all crying out for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Verse 35, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples or blasphemers of your goddess. You should pay attention to the language there. He doesn't say our goddess. He says your goddess. Which may indicate who this, whose allegiance this man had come to give himself to. Therefore, verse 38, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for they, we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. For you have brought these men here, verse 37, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. So who is this? This is the city clerk, and he's saying to the mob, we have no reason for this gathering and this uprising. And Rome is getting nervous about what's happening. And you need to go home, and if you've got a problem with these guys, you've got courts, you got pro-councils, you have lawful ways to get redressed, to, to, to work out whatever the problem is. But there is no law that's been broken. There is no charge that can be brought against these men. And this is what I want to look at is verse 37. Now, why did Demet what did Demetrius say? They're gonna make our they're gonna make our um, our way of life, our way of living, our trade fall into disrepute. We're going to lose our reputation. They're going to despise Diana and perhaps even ultimately destroy her. Completely inflaming the crowd and getting the whole city carried away. And once order was brought to the crowd, here's what the city clerk says. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. This tells us something about how Paul went about ministering to unbelievers. And we saw the same thing in Athens when he is talking with not just people in the market, but when he goes before the council there in Athens. 
He did not blaspheme their gods. He pointed them to His God, to the one true God. And this seems to be what Paul did in Ephesus. He spends three years there, and there can be no charge brought against Paul because there was nothing to charge him with. But yet, somehow, the people of Ephesus came to realize that they are not to worship Diana any longer to such a large degree that these tradesmen felt it in their pocketbook. They were feeling it in a major way and realized that something had to change because our life and our world as we have known it is changing. So two things that city clerk address, addresses specifically. They were not robbers of temples. Now that might not mean much to us today, but there were temples all over the ancient world. So you've got to understand, Paul is living and Jesus lived in a different time than us. Now Jesus went to the Jews. He was born in Bethlehem. He spent all of his time from the scriptural record, from the record of scripture, he spent all of his time within the land of Israel. There's nothing in scripture that tells us that Jesus departed from that land. And Jesus himself tells us that he went first to the Jews. He didn't come to go to the Gentiles. He made that clear on more than one occasion. Jesus never left the confines of Palestine, as it was called back then. And he ministered and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews. But he also made it very clear that this gospel is for the world. And, and this is how the Jews would have understood John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We hear... God so loved the world, every human being on planet earth. That's not how the Jews would have heard it. The Jews would have heard God so loved the world. Uh, you mean God loves the Gentiles too? You mean God's going to save the Gentiles too? And the way they reconciled that within themselves was, well, sure, if they become Jews, they can worship God with us. And we know this is true because we know what happened with the early church. Until the gospel went beyond the Jews. It went first to the Samaritans, then it went to the Gentiles. But the, for the first years of the church, it was exclusively Jewish. This is the battle Paul fights in all of his epistles where the Judaizers are going Followers of Jesus, the Messiah, going to the Christian Gentiles, telling them, you've got to convert to Judaism. You've got to obey the law. Paul said, no, they don't. They have to trust in Christ is what they have to do. They have to trust in Christ and live according to Christ, which is going to be very similar to the way the Jews lived, except we're not offering animal sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that was made for the sin of the world, for sins of Jews and sins of Gentiles. So here, they were not robbers of temple, the clerk says. So pagan temples that were dotted all over the world, all over the known world, all over the Roman 
kingdom because they were all over the Greek kingdom. They were all over the Medo-Persian kingdom. They were all over the Babylonian kingdom. They were everywhere. Christians were called atheists in Rome because they only believed in one God. So the problem wasn't getting people to believe in Jesus. The problem was getting, to peop getting people to believe and trust only in Jesus and discard all your other gods. This is the same problem we have today in India with Hinduism. Hindus believe in millions of gods. Hindus don't have a problem accepting Jesus as another one of their gods. M the more the better. The more gods I have, the better. The better chance I have of, of coming back as that higher life form and reaching you know, that ultimate place. No, the problem is getting them to understand, just like it was in the ancient world, that there's only one God, and you've got to get rid of all your other gods and embrace the one and the true God. So these temples that were everywhere, what did people do? They brought their offerings there. They brought their things of worship there. They would give their treasure. Just like we say today, give your time, talent, and treasure. They would take their time, their talents, and their treasures, and they would put it in the temples. These pagan temples were filled with treasures. And so temple robbing was a real thing in the ancient world, and it was not, it was not, uh, it was not looked upon kindly. In fact, there was, there was no tolerance for temple robbing. Because they didn't have security temple uh, security uh, systems, and they didn't have uh, people just guarding the temples all the time. And so, when you found a temple robber, it was like in the old west. Do you know what they did with horse thieves? They hung them. So, uh, and in fact, one of the commentaries it says it uses that analogy that temple robbers were looked on the same way horse thieves were looked upon. There was no tolerance for it. And so the city clerk says, these men are not robbers of temples. And that would make perfect sense because that would be sinful on every level if they were, right? Nor though, now listen to this, nor were they blasphemers of your goddess. Now, I get the whole thing of, of robbing temples. That's theft. That treasure doesn't belong to me. So whether I go into a temple and take that treasure or whether I go into a bank and take someone else's treasure, it doesn't belong to me. That's stealing, and the Bible says don't do that. But he also says, nor were they blasphemers of your goddess. The idea of blaspheming a false god seems less offensive to me, and, and I think it must seem less offensive to us today. But in Paul's day, the Gentile world worshipped false gods. The Jews did not make a habit of blaspheming false gods. Now that might sound a little different too when you go and you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you get into Joshua and Judges and you see God commanding Israel to go into the land and to drive out the tribes, to defeat the tribes, and to get rid of the false gods. To literally destroy the false gods and the idols and the idolatrous practices. So how do we reconcile this? When we think of the early church, when we think of Paul, when we think of the early Christians, when we think of Jesus himself, 
did they blaspheme the false gods of the Gentiles? It appears that Paul did not go to the Gentiles blaspheming their gods. And there's a good reason for that, because Paul would have never been heard. I mean, he, they would have never given him the opportunity to even preach the gospel, just like what was happening here. For two hours, they're just crying out because they're irrationally uh, fearing something that, that's not taking place because Paul is leading a group to go destroy the temple of Diana. He is, but he's not. Do you understand the difference? He's preaching the gospel, and Paul knows perfectly well what's going to happen to Diana in the temple of Diana. She will be destroyed. She will become despised. She will disappear just like she has today. The only thing you can see from her that's left from her is the ruins of her temple. That's all you can see. Paul was not weak. Paul was wise. He knew what he needed to do in order to gain an audience for the gospel. Now we need to be careful here and not confuse this with the sinful practices today we call seeker-sensitive or emergent. That is sin. That is weakness. Paul was not weak in any way, shape, or form. Paul was not watering down the gospel in any way, shape, or form. Unlike many Christians today, Paul did not have a problem calling sin, sin. Understanding your audience is not the same thing we see today in the watered-down movements designed to comfort people in their sin. You see a vast difference when Paul, and Christ for that matter, is addressing the church. The gospel itself is offensive. This is why we have a mob in Ephesus, because the gospel is offensive. And these people who probably thought Paul was just another babbler, that's what they called him in Athens, who is this babbler, which was a very derogatory term. Remember what that meant? The seed picker. It literally meant, who is the seed picker? And it was a picture of birds picking up seeds. And they were saying, this seed picker, this guy who's just picking, picking phrases, picking belief systems, just trying to create his own way. This seed picker, very, very derogatory. That's what they thought Paul was in Athens until he finally addressed the council. Even though they rejected him, they gave that seed picker an audience where not a lot of people get an audience. And so when we see Paul, when we see Jesus addressing the church, the believers, we see a very different tone and we see a very different way used. And the fact that Paul didn't blaspheme the goddess is why there were no charges brought against him. Otherwise, there could have been charges brought. But yet, Paul did Paul blaspheme the goddess? He absolutely did by, by doing what? By preaching the gospel. It's kind of like Peter Jones says in our Sunday school class, oneism and twoism. Don't call them pagans, just call them oneist. And they won't know what you're talking about. They didn't know Paul was blaspheming Diana, but he absolutely was 
by simply telling them the truth. And the truth and the light exposed the lie that that false god was. So much so that people from all over Asia began to turn away from her. So Paul did exactly what Jesus commands his disciples to do. To be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Again, Jesus is not promoting weakness, but wisdom. Confusion is void of wisdom, and this is why God is not the author of confusion. He is the all-wise God. We are to walk in His wisdom, allowing His Word to be the hammer that breaks the hardness of men's hearts. We need to understand this. When Jesus says, be as wise as serpent and as harmless in doves, Jesus is not telling us, never offend someone. Jesus is telling us, take the hammer of God's word and smash everything that's a lie. But it's not us bringing harm. It's the hammer bringing truth. There is a difference. And the church today has got to understand this. And we have to be willing to use that hammer even if it ultimately brings us before the mob and we lose our life. Now, that day Paul didn't lose his life before the mob. You know why? Because it wasn't time for him to lose his, his life. He was willing to go but the grace of God and wiser counsel prevailed, not allowing him to go into that theater and address that mob because he would have never come out. He is the all-wise God, and we are to walk in his wisdom, allowing his word to be the hammer that breaks the hardness of men's hearts. Ephesians 5 15 and 17, listen to what Paul writes. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The days were evil then, and guess what? They're evil now. This is why more than ever we must walk as wise, not as fools who do not believe. A fool is someone who do, does not believe. When the Bible talks about fools, we just watched the, the video last night. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Cy? Cy Tin Bergenkate. Um, in the name of the, it's really great, great little uh, piece on YouTube called Answer the Fool. How to Answer the Fool. How to Answer the Fool. And, and so, what is a fool? We know that the Bible says a fool is someone who doesn't believe in God. And so when Paul says walk wisely, not as fools, in other words, don't walk as an unbeliever. Walk as a believer. Walk as one who trusts in God, who trusts in the power of God. Paul knew he didn't have to blaspheme the temple of Diana because he knew the power of the gospel. And he knew the power of the gospel would shatter men's hearts, give entrance to Christ, and they would receive new hearts and become new creations. And God would deliver them from that lie and that falsehood. And that's how we are commanded to walk, trusting in 
the power of the gospel. This is why the Bible doesn't call us convincers. The Bible calls us messengers, ambassadors. We are bringing the message of the king. It's not our place to convince people to believe in the king. It's our, it's our place to bring people the message of the king and command them to do what the king, the king commands them to do. Command them to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's not a suggestion. That is a commandment. But in our commanding men to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved, we have to understand it's not our place to convince them. We command them. It's the hammer of God's word that will break through the hardness of their hearts. We need to be wise in how and when we fight our battles. And when Paul was leaving Ephesus, he was not leaving the fight. He was preparing to continue the fight. Paul knew there was a place and a time and a way he was to wage the warfare he was in. We must be a people who know when and how to fight our battles. God will give us wisdom to do just that. And that is why His Word is so vital. It is from the Word of God that we gain the wisdom needed to know not only how to fight, but when and where we fight. Ephesians 6.10-13, through 13, Paul writes these words, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the day, evil day, and having done all, to stand. It goes on, and Paul writes in the next verse, Stand therefore, putting on that armor. So stand we must, and stand we will. We will not shrink back from the fight, but we must fight faithfully and courageously in the wisdom and the power of God. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise that Jesus gives to us. But it is not without hope. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, Jesus tells us. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus is king, we win. Amen? Here we would normally have our time for communion, um, but obviously we're not gathered together at the table. So I would encourage you though today, as you, uh, after our service is over and we break for lunch, or as you go to lunch and as you have lunch, to take a moment. You know, in the early church, communion was not like we have it in our churches today. There's nothing wrong with the way we do communion in our churches today. But they would literally have what was called a love feast. And they would literally eat a meal together. And as part of that meal was the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. So as you sit down for lunch today, remember the body that was broken for you. Remember the blood that was poured out for you. And as you give thanks to the Lord and the salvation that He has brought to us, remember that we are in a battle. 
that there is a warfare that is taking place right now. Whether you feel it, whether you know it, whether your life is completely at peace and everything is just the way you want it, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you are in a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare. And we should not go through that battle and through that warfare unaware of it. And you cannot be unaware of it because I just told you you're in it. And now that you're aware of it, we need to think about how we're living our lives. What is my witness? Am I afraid to get canceled by the culture today? There is a way that we should wage our war. There is a how, a when, and a where. But there is never a time for us to compromise the gospel. There is never a time for us to pretend like sin is okay. There is never a time for us to not tell the truth to people God has placed in and around our lives, especially those people. If we did nothing else but tell the truth to the people that God has placed in and around our spheres of influence, whether it be our family, our friends, our co-workers, we have so many people that God has put in contact with us that we need to share the uncompromised gospel with because they are also in that battle. They are also in that warfare and they cannot, they must not become a casualty to a church that is unwilling to tell the truth and to share the truth just because it may cost them their reputation or because it may cost them some measure of convenience or prosperity because it may get them canceled. What happens when it gets us more than canceled? What happens when it gets us arrested? What happens when it gets us tortured for Christ? Don't think that can't happen. It's happening right now all over this world. It has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen. And the threat of that and the fear of that must not cause us to back down. It must cause us to rise up and be ever more vocal and be ever more bold in our witness to Christ. Not blaspheming the false gods of this age, but proclaiming boldly the light and the power of the darkness. That is our charge, church. That's what it means to go and to make disciples of the nations. So go and let your light shine. Let the warmth, the heat, the fire of the gospel not just light your way, let it melt the coldness of men's hearts and let the hammer of God's word do its work. Be his witness for his glory. Amen. Amen.